0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point. It's good to have all of you with us today. Uh, today's uh, the second week of Advent, and today we're going to talk about joy. And uh, you just heard uh, the text read from Luke chapter 1 uh, from Phil and Patty. And that text is about God breaking a 400-year silence to his people with a birth announcement. And this, Luke is the only gospel writer to, to tell us about this birth announcement. Uh, we hear about the birth announcement to Mary, um, and we hear about uh, the announcement to Joseph. But Luke is the only one to tell us about this birth announcement to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's the only one to even talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And uh, it's just an incredible story, an incredible narrative. And I, is there anything more joyful than a birth announcement? I mean... Some of you, I was talking last week about how sometimes when I get down, I get discouraged, um, having a bad week. I'll sometimes go on YouTube and I'll watch videos of soldiers returning home to their loved ones and surprising them. And the other thing I do is I'll watch videos of birth announcements because they're just so joyful, and, I, and it's just one of those things that it'll bring me to tears because they're so exciting, and um, it's just a, it's just an occasion for happiness and. I can still remember the first time my wife got pregnant. And we, uh, her, her, my wife is a firstborn. And I'm also a firstborn. And it was, it would be the first grandchild for her parents. And so we couldn't wait to tell her parents about this child that was born. We're like, oh, how can we do this? How can we make it fun? And, and, um, you know, people do all kinds of crazy stuff today for birth announcements. And then, and then, of course, now today there's like the gender reveal party. That wasn't even a thing when we were having kids. And now that's another thing. We've been invited to a couple of those. And those are, again, just super happy, joyful occasions. I, I, but I still remember what we did. We, we found, we were at Goodwill because we spend a lot of time there. And we, uh, we, we found this shirt. And we're like, oh, we should give this to your dad. So here's the shirt that we gave to uh, Vicky's dad. And I remember we were all we, all of Vicky's brothers and sisters and or her one sister were at, the, we were sitting around their dining room table and the whole family was there. And we're like, oh, Dad, oh, Dad, we found something for you at Goodwill and we gave Don this shirt. And he's like, he's at the head of the table and everyone else, no one can, else can really see it. And he opens the shirt like this and he's like looking at it like, like, he doesn't get it. We're like, we're sitting there waiting. We're like ready to, you know, just explode. We're like waiting. We're like, okay, come on, Don, get there faster. And then they're like, what is it? And then he turns and shows And everyone else, of course, got it right away. And they're like, what? Yeah! And, you know, people were rejoicing and start laughing and crying. And finally, Don figured it out. All right, maybe, maybe I embellished just a little. But he definitely was slow on the take that day. Um, but but it, was, it, was, it was really awesome. Uh, so today, we're going to talk about joy Uh, Something you should know about joy is I I don't think you can find joy on your own. That's what makes joy different than happiness. You you can't find joy on your own. You can find happiness. You can make yourself happy. You can find comfort. You can find pleasure in things and in people, but you don't find joy. Joy finds you. Okay, that's what's different about joy. Joy finds you. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Christmas is a time when you're supposed to be joyful. You are, everyone's, that's what we're, we always sing about, you know, joy to the world, and this is the most wonderful time of the year. Of any time of the year, this is the time of the year where you're supposed to be happy, but you're supposed to be, have joy. But I don't think it's fair to tell people that they should be joyful, because, you know, that little video that we saw, is, it was about that. You know, you, you, for a lot of people, There's just nothing to be joyful about. Christmas is is just a reminder that they are lonely. It's a reminder of their past or their regrets. It's a reminder to them that their life hasn't turned out the way they wanted it to. And that joy hasn't come. And for every couple that gets to share the joy of a birth announcement with their parents and siblings and friends, there's another couple who never get to experience that. And, and, And we don't often understand why that is. But that joy hasn't come, and one such couple was Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke tells us three things about Zechariah and Elizabeth to start to kind of set up his narrative. Three things he tells us: number one, um, they were Zechariah is a priest in Jerusalem; he was set apart for to intercede for the people, to offer sacrifices, and all that kind of stuff to pray. He he was set apart. He came from a line of priests. Elizabeth also was from a family of priests. So serving God is their family heritage. It's in their blood. It's, it's what they've always known. Number two, they were righteous in God's eyes. We're told they were blameless or above reproach. And that doesn't mean they were sinless. It just means that they wanted to please God. They had a heart for God. They were humble and hungry for God. That tells us about their character. And number three, we're told that they were very old and without children. They were barren. And there was, back in the ancient, the ancient Near East, there was no social security or welfare system. So not only was being childless emotionally devastating, it was financially dangerous. Because back then, the way that you uh, secured your future or provided for, for a safe future... Was you had children, especially sons, who could take care of you and provide for you in your old age. That's how you did that. So Zechariah and Elizabeth—they don't have that protection. They don't have that hope. They don't have that security. They don't have children. They don't have much money. (coughs) They—they lived out in the country. You could picture. You probably could picture Zechariah as this uh, old, simple country guy who probably pastored a very, or, or probably oversaw services in a very small synagogue or temple that we're, or gathering where uh, maybe like a church of 50 people, and he was faithful, and he shepherded his flock, and he prayed for his people, but he couldn't make a living doing that, so he had to provide for himself some other way. He might have been a seed farmer as our best guess or something like that. We don't really know, but he, but he was faithful. What we do know is that if you were a married couple... In Jerusalem, you, or in, in ancient times anywhere, really, and you didn't have children, people looked at you differently. They looked at you differently. They might look at you and be like, oh, you guys don't have kids? There must be something wrong with you. <laughs> Maybe God's judging you. Maybe it's a punishment. Maybe you did something so that you didn't deserve the blessing of children, right? I mean, I hate to admit this, but don't we sometimes do this in the church? Haven't Christians done this before? You know, you, you meet a Christian couple, a great couple. Oh, you guys have any kids? No. What's wrong with you? <laughs> we don't say that out loud, but you might think it. And that's wrong. It's, it's wrong. The truth is, maybe, the God, maybe, maybe God hasn't give them, given them children for some reason. Maybe they've been faithful. Maybe they've chosen not to have kids for good reason. My wife and I have plenty of kids. Maybe there's something wrong with us. That's how I feel a lot of the time, you know? Um, the church, and this includes us here at Cross Point, we need to change the way that we view people who don't have kids, the way that we view people who are single. You know why? Because Jesus redefined what it means to have a full, complete life. Jesus redefined that in his culture, in his day, and in our day. Okay? And according to Jesus, you don't have to be married to be complete. You don't have to have kids to be complete. All you need is Jesus. All you need is faith in Jesus and obedience to the gospel. That's what you need. And then you're complete. You don't need all those other things. And as Jesus' church began to develop and form and get stronger in the New Testament, they embodied this kind of culture. The church was full of people who were single, who didn't have kids, who were widowed, and they were all equal they were all taken care of. They were all loved and valued. And that, the church should be different in that regard, different from our culture. We should look at people differently who don't have kids and who don't have a, a spouse. And we should treasure them like we treasure everyone else. There's nothing wrong with being a church that's you know, family friendly and family. You know, your family is safe here and we have you know, think, something for everyone in your family. There's nothing wrong with that. But we should be a church that's full of all kinds of people. Because everyone, everyone has been called by God and is valuable to the church, whether they have kids or not, whether they're married or not. It's just something, to, something that comes out in this story even. In fact, Luke makes this very poignant observation that even though Zechariah and Elizabeth don't have children, <coughs> there's nothing wrong with them. Not, nothing at all. They've been faithful, they have prayed, they have served. They are not incomplete. Their infertility has nothing to do with their choices. It's not their fault. And even though they have suffered from the pain of infertility their entire long life together, they're still trusting in God. They prayed and waited for for God for years to give them a child and nothing changed. And they decided that even though God had not answered their prayers for a child, God was still worth living for. They have long since given up on children, but they haven't given up on God. That's what, that's what we, Luke wants us to know about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And here's something I love about Elizabeth, what, what we see in this narrative, is Elizabeth is not waiting for a child before she starts living her life. She is busy serving God and people. She's relying on God's word. She's a, a woman of spiritual influence, and that is why Luke can say they were living the right way. They weren't waiting for God to give them what they wanted before they started living their life and doing what God called them to do. They weren't bitter about it. They just served. And so now you've met Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's talk about this first event that Luke records in his Gospel of Jesus. This is, this is Luke's account, historical account of Jesus' life. And he chooses to start his history of Jesus with this story. Which is significant. Any, any writer of any book of the Bible is very careful about how they choose to record their part of redemptive history. And Luke chooses to start with this story. And what he says is, one day, this is verse 8, one day Zechariah was serving God in the temple. Now, that sounds like just another day in the life of a priest, right? But it wasn't just another day in the life of a priest. This is a once-in-a-lifetime day. And the reason is because there were a lot of priests in Jerusalem back then, some 20,000. And there was only a morning and an evening service, more like a late afternoon service at the temple when people gathered for the sacrifice and the, and the offering of the incense and the prayers. And Zechariah belonged to a division of priests that only served two weeks a year. And in his division of priests, there were, over a, there were something like 1,000 priests in just his division, And once you were selected randomly to serve in the temple, that was it. You would never do it again. This is Zechariah's only Super Bowl appearance. That's what this is. And uh, there's an English scholar named William Barclay who who made this comment. He said, it was quite possible that many a priest would never have the privilege of burning incense all of his life. But if the lot did fall on any priest, that day was the greatest day in all of his life, the day he longed for. And dreamed of. So I imagine, that th- I imagine this conversation happening between Zechariah and Elizabeth that morning. Something like, Elizabeth, I've been chosen to offer incense at the, at, the giving, at the evening sacrifice. This is the greatest day of my life. And Elizabeth probably said, what about the day we got married? And Zechariah was like, like I said, this is the second greatest day of my life. <laughs> have you made that mistake, guys? I, I have totally done that. Zechariah, I want you to picture the scene with me, and you're going to see a little virtual uh, entrance of the holy place here. Zechariah puts on his priestly robes, which symbolize purity. He takes the incense in his hands. He walks through the outer courts of the temple. Crowds of people spread out so he can clear a path in front of him. The sun was setting. All eyes are on him. People are praying for him as he walks up the steps to the entrance to the temple, and he begins to make his way into the holy place. Which was a sacred inner room inside the temple he sees the sacred furniture that the Israelites had made, according to the instructions God gave Moses over a hundred or uh, excuse me over a thousand years before. on his left was the golden lampstand, giving out a faint light as the candles burned on his right was the table of bread in front of him was the golden altar of incense, and behind the altar is that thick, giant sacred curtain that guarded the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was said to dwell. Zechariah was burning the incense and offering prayers to God for the people. And his heart is probably burning in his chest, and there's another picture I want you to see, and, and this, is, this is a more scalable like, uh, view of the temple and how, actually how large the holy place was. And how high the ceiling was, 72 feet, I believe it was. And so picture on Zechariah's right, a giant, bright, magnificent, spiritual creature, an angel of God. And he's terrified. And anyone who tells you they've seen angels, by the way, you know, I've seen, oh yeah, I saw an angel once and they said this to me, you should say, well, what, what was that like? And if they don't talk about feeling terrified, it wasn't an angel of God. Because God would send angels to wipe out nations, a single angel. They're fierce, beautiful creatures. And any time a, a human finds himself in a presence of an angel of God, there's fear. And, <laughs> rightfully so. I mean, think about it. Zechariah is terrified in the presence of this angel and he's a good man imagine if it were you you know you see this angel you're going to fall on your face start confessing your sins and I would too and the first thing Gabriel tells Zechariah is your prayer has been heard and your wife you and your wife are going to have a son Zechariah has been waiting his whole life to hear this to hear those words But the angel doesn't stop there. He makes some staggering claims about his son, who we know as John the Baptist. And I want to zero in on just one claim this morning that that the angel makes about John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. He says, "'You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord.' So here's this messenger of God who came directly from God. And he's not just any messenger. This is the angel Gabriel. There's only two angels in all of the Bible that are named. Gabriel's one of them. He's the one who appeared to Daniel hundreds of years earlier and prophesied about the future and about God's salvation. He, he was, he's going to appear to Mary next. And he gives Zechariah the best news of his life. His son is going to bring joy to people all over the country. His son is going to prepare the nation of Israel for the advent of God. He's not just going to be another priest in a long line of faithful priests. He's going to be the greatest prophet that the the, the Jews have ever heard. Greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah, greater than Daniel. He's going to be great in the eyes of God. God's going to look at, at their son and say... That's a great man. Think about that for a minute. I mean, you know how we, as parents, sometimes pray for our kids? God, please help my child to make good choices. Please help them to succeed. Please help them to stop screaming at us. Please help our child to stay out of trouble. Please help them to be faithful and kind to others. How many of you are praying this? God, make my child great in your eyes. Not many people, I don't think. It seems like too much to ask of God even, doesn't it? That God would look at our child and say, that one is great. And that's what Jesus will say about John. That he's the greatest, who was born of a woman. And this is all too much for Zechariah. He can't even believe it. He should be jumping up and down like weeping tears of joy. But he can't. He's not ready. He doesn't believe and with a very fitting consequence, God shuts Zechariah's mouth. He will be deaf and mute until his son is born. He's just heard the best news of his life. He can't even tell anyone about it. And you know, good news can be challenging for us. Good news can be challenging for us at times. Like we just don't, we just, it's like we're not ready for it. We're, we're so comfortable with disappointment that when we finally hear unbelievable news, it's, we just can't. We can't receive it. And, and you know why? Because some of us are skeptics. Some of us are, are realists. You know, how many of you are a realist? You would consider yourself a realist. You know, I'm married to a realist. I'm the dreamer. She's the realist. We, it works. It works. <laughs> okay? And I think Zechariah was a realist. There's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a realist. I just think that for Zechariah... This, is, this just doesn't make sense. He has no category for this. We're old. How can we ever have a child? How could the child be great? You know, all of this stuff. The announcement's just too good to be true. And it's not like Zechariah was even completely unbelieving. He just doubts. He asks for a sign. He wants more information. He wants the messenger to convince him. He wants to believe, but something inside him won't let him rejoice. And this is not unique to Zechariah. There's a pattern of unbelief in Israel. There's a pattern of unbelief in us. I want you to think for a minute about all the things you've been praying for in your life that have never come to pass. And I want you to ask yourself, do I believe that God's going to deliver? Do I believe that God is willing and able to give me what I've been asking for? And I just, I just think that sometimes we don't. We just don't believe. Or we just don't ask because we don't think God's going to answer. We don't want to be disappointed. And so we sometimes we read about God's love, his unconditional love, and we think, oh, he can't be talking about me. I've messed up too many times. I haven't cleaned up my life yet. I haven't done what I said I would. So God can't deliver me. He can't forgive me. He can't love me like that. God can't change my husband. Once a, once a liar, always a liar, once a cheater, always a cheater. God can't save my dad. He's never gonna change. He'll be that way until he dies. That's unbelief. If you're gonna pray to God and ask for something, you'd better believe it's gonna happen. It's okay to it's okay to doubt. Don't get I'm not saying you shouldn't. It's okay to doubt. Doubt is very important to developing your faith. But unbelief, when we're talking about God, unbelief will just make you stuck. And the first two chapters, the first two chapters of Luke's gospel is just full of unbelievable and joyful news. Zechariah is the first to hear it. Then Mary, then Elizabeth then the shepherds, then Simeon in the temple, which we read about last week, and then a lady named, an old lady named Anna, and it doesn't stop there. Over and over again, we are shown a God who sparks joy in a people who are living in darkness, people who didn't expect it, people who were convinced that God was not for them but against them. One of my favorite stories of God's joy in the Gospel of Luke comes through in one of Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 15. Jesus. There were some uh, religious guys who were who were criticizing Jesus because he was spending all this time with sinners, people who didn't deserve God, and they're grumbling about Jesus. And Jesus, so Jesus said this: If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety-nine others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous in heaven straight away. You know, some people might read that and be like, It's just a sheep. There's a very short parable right on the heels of this one where Jesus says there's a woman who had ten coins and she lost one coin. And she tore her house apart and then she found it. And then she called all of her friends and had this big party because she found a coin. And we might think, it's just a coin. But then God tells a story about the son. And this old man had two sons and one of them was lost and he finally came, you know, he thought he was dead and he came home. I mean, it's like, don't you get it? All it takes is one sinner to be found, and all of heaven rejoices. It's like the, when the son comes home, it's the best day of the father's life. That's how God treats one sinner who turns back to him. Every time someone turns to God, God and all of heaven rejoice. And you know what we do? We, we say, oh, that's wonderful. You know, we clap. We uh, we'll, we'll just say, that's great news. But deep down, some of us are saying, It's just another sinner. It's just someone else turning to God. It's just a sheep. It's just a coin. Pretty soon they're going to go back to the way things were. Nothing will change, so let's not get our hopes too high. Let's not party too hard. Let's wait and see. That's how how some of us treat one lost sinner who has turned back to God. You know, a lot of people have been talking about Kanye West and how you know, what, what is this all about? What's going on really? You know, I mean, I'm mean, i not going to you know go real deep into this because Peter brought this up a few weeks ago and I, lo- I don't have really anything better to say than what he said. But people are still talking about Kanye West, putting his faith in Jesus. And a lot of people are hesitant about Kanye. They don't believe it's real. They won't rejoice because one sinner, one lost sinner turned to God. They want to wait and see. I think some people actually want Kanye to fail. And those people do not have a heart after God's. because while they are waiting to see what happens, God is rejoicing. God rejoices not because all our problems have been solved, not because our lives are all cleaned up and we're back on track, not because we're not ever going to fail again or have pain again. No. God rejoices because one sinner has found their way back to him. Will we do the same? Will we do the same? God is not keeping his joy to himself. He wants us to rejoice with him. He wants heaven to be full. He wants to spread his joy everywhere. He wants everyone to know. When I was in my early 20s, and I know I've told this story before, and I'll tell it again because this is the best day of my life the best day of my life <laughs> when I was in my early 20s I was chasing joy I was never finding it I looked for it in friends I looked for it in, in drugs and alcohol I looked for it in sports I looked for it in women I looked for it in education and knowledge I kept coming up short it never lasted and then one night a good friend of mine named Henry some of you met him last year he lives in Jerusalem he, the happiest guy I know he led me to Jesus And that night, I said to Jesus, Jesus, I know what happens when I'm in control of my life. And and I'm not qualified to run my life. I give control of my life to you. I want to find my life in you. And that night, the burden of sin was lifted, and I experienced freedom and joy for the first time in my life. And uh, I was living at home at the time in my parents' basement. And uh, I was too old to be doing that, by the way. And my sister, I, I, I got home that night, and I couldn't wait to tell my parents. Normally, I would, my parents, so you walk in our house. We bought our parents' house. It's the same house. You walk in our house, and upstairs was my parents' room. And downstairs, I wanted my room to be as far away from theirs as possible. I would just walk right downstairs. I would never talk to them when I came home. But this night, I couldn't wait to talk to them. So I went right upstairs. I told them that I had decided to follow Jesus. They're like, you did What? They were kind of like Zechariah. Really? You know, like they've been praying for me for years to do this, and it finally happened, and they weren't ready. But they rejoiced with me. My mom cried. It was, it was wonderful. And then I wanted to find my sister, my little sister, who was, I think, 18 or 19 at the time. And for whatever reason, I just wanted to find my sister and hug her and play with her. I, I don't think I ever wanted to play with my sister my whole life. All she did, ever did was annoy me. But I had this joy in my heart that just made me want to be with my sister and spend some time with her. So I I found out my sister was in this one room and I waited around the corner until she came around. I jumped out and I scared the living daylights out of her and then I just hugged her. She's like, what's going on, you know? And my sister would later tell me that when she looked at me, my face was bright. She said she knew. She looked right into my eyes and she could tell that there was something different. I was lit up with the joy of God. I didn't have much in my life to be happy about. I didn't have friends, real friends. I didn't have money. I didn't have a good job, even a job I, job I liked. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have a girlfriend. That morning when I woke up, I had no joy. I wasn't just, you know, bursting at the seams waiting for another day to come around. I had given up on joy. But now I had Jesus, and nothing else mattered to me. And my sister, my sister and I now are very close because of that. And 22 years later, I have so much more than I had then, and yet sometimes I struggle to find that joy again. I struggle to recover it, you know, because I'm too busy worrying about things, too busy focusing on the past, thinking about what I can't do, thinking about what I could have done, sometimes I forget how good God has been to me and what he's done for me because I get distracted by things I don't have or things I think I need. I don't need anything else. I just need more of Jesus. That joy that I had that night is available to me every single day because every single day God's mercies are new and that joy lives inside of me and God says it can never be taken away from me. Every day is another day to rest in the fact that Jesus Christ has taken my sorrows and taken my shame and given me his joy in return and I will never be the same. Last week, we looked into one of Isaiah's prophecies about the coming of God into the world. And here's, here's another one. Isaiah is talking about Israel's only Savior in Isaiah 43. And he says this. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? When God visited me, when God picked me and said, wake up, you sleeper, it was the best day of my life. Has that happened to you? Has joy found you? If you are dwelling on your past, you won't see God at work in your life. If you're living with unbelief, you won't see it. Do you have the joy of knowing the forgiveness and the grace and the freedom of Jesus? This isn't happiness. You can find happiness... You can find pleasure in in things, in money, food, sex, drugs, music, your kids, whatever. But you can't find joy. Joy finds you. And some of you have been waiting for joy a long time. You're living with some kind of disgrace. Just like Elizabeth was. And at at the very last verse, verse 25 of this narrative, Elizabeth says this, How kind the Lord is. He has taken away my disgrace. You know what disgrace means? It means apart from grace. It's like a reproach. It's something keeping you from receiving grace and honor in the presence of God. Elizabeth's disgrace was her infertility. That was the thing in her life that caused others to look on her with disapproval. And she felt that disapproval. What's your disgrace? What's the thing in your life? That you think other people are looking at you and that thing with disapproval. (laughs) What is that thing? What is your reproach? What is your shame? Is it failure? Is it divorce? Is it addiction? Is it a desire for the praise of other people? Is it, some kind, is it something you've been hiding from others because of shame? Whatever your disgrace is, I want to remind you of something today. The Savior has come. The Savior has come. Elizabeth did have a child. They named him John like God told them, them to. Zechariah was able to speak again. John prepared the way for Jesus. And then Jesus came. And guess what he did? He took our disgrace on himself. Everything in your life that brings you disgrace, Jesus took on himself, so he became the one who was disgraced. He was taken outside of the city, a disgraced criminal, and crucified, humiliated, mocked, spit on. And he died with our disgrace on him so that we could be free from disgrace. That's the hope that we have today. That's the joy. That's the freedom that we have in Jesus, the joy. That can never be taken away from you. Once you're a child of God, that's it. There's no more disgrace for you. He's taken away your reproach. Just like we were singing earlier, whoever the Son sets free, he's free indeed. I'm a child of God. In the Father's house, there's a place for me. And that place will never be taken from you. No one's more powerful than God. No one can take you out of his hand. And and no one can take your joy but you. So, we have a new disgrace. Our new disgrace is Jesus. As we carry the name of Jesus into this world and we identify with Jesus and we tell other people about Jesus, people will disgrace you. They will treat you with just disapproval because of your loyalty to Jesus, and that's a good thing. That's you you exchanging your old disgrace, your old sin, for Jesus. That's how it works. Jesus is better. We should be willing to be disgraced for Jesus, because he took our disgrace on him. So now there are two kinds of people today. The people that are walking around saying, what has God done for me? Why should I worship God? I, you know, I try to be good, I pray, and God doesn't answer. What has he done for me? That's one kind of person. They have no joy. And then there's us. We know what God has done for us. We know what our disgrace was, and that he took it and placed it on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could have joy no matter what's going on around us. And now we should want to praise God with every breath that we have. May that be us. May we be a people who are not always happy, you know. And we don't always have to be in a good mood. But may we never lose the joy that has been given to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for using people like Zechariah and Elizabeth to teach us about faith and joy. We thank you, God, for your word which will never fade which will never perish. Your word abides forever and we thank you for your many promises and that you have delivered on everyone and that one day Jesus is going to come back and that he will restore all things including the joy that was meant to be ours from the very beginning of creation. God, may we look forward to that joy with great anticipation. May we have joy this Christmas season and share it with others. May you remind us what you've done for us, God, and may we trust you in every circumstance. May we pray with faith and live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Amen. I'm really embarrassed to admit this, but I forgot to bring my Bible up here. Does anyone have a Bible I can use for the benediction? I can't believe, I don't think I've ever done that before. Thank you, Lindy. Please rise. I'd like to give you the benediction this morning from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Please think about this as you leave this morning, beginning in verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Amen. I hope you have a wonderful week. Invite a friend back for next week when we talk about peace.